Uh, most all of y'all know, I guess, that since before, really, I, I came to be the pastor here at Sharon Heights, we have been looking uh, for that next person to kind of step our music position, uh, who will take the reins of that and lead that. And Sister Kelly has, has been in that for a long time, and she's done a great job. Doesn't she do a fantastic job? Um, and she she's, has kind of felt like that, you know, her gifts would, would best be utilized elsewhere in our church family, and we can't change her mind. And so, you know, we've been looking for that next person to do what she's been doing here for a long time. And by the grace of God, I'm able to say that we are very, very close. And we feel like we have found the Lord's person for our church. And we're excited about that and look forward to bringing uh, him in so that you can get to know him and, and moving forward and all that kind of thing. But as you can imagine, that process of finding that person is not always exciting. It is not always fun, it is not always easy, because you've got all these different you know, expectations to meet, questions to balance, all these different things you're trying to do. Like you have to think about, okay, how can we bring in somebody that is going to best represent the culture of where our church has, has been, is right now, and where we feel like the Lord wants it to be. And you want to make sure that you bring somebody in who's you know, not going to make a bunch of people mad over the music that they select, because... You know, just like I do, right, that there are about three things people will fight you over. Their dogs, their church music, and their kids. Usually in that order, right? And we want to make sure that, you know, we get the person that God wants. We want somebody that, that can sing. That's like the bare minimum job expectation. But somebody who's more than just a singer or a musician and somebody that's even more than just a leader. We want somebody who has a heart to genuinely worship God, and uh, I told him in the first service, I said, listen, George Strait can sing, but you don't want him leading the choir, right? You want somebody that has a real heart for God. Maybe you do want George Strait. I don't know. Some of y'all look kind of weird at that. But you want somebody that has a heart for God. And so we've brought these people in, and we've sat them down in our church at different points along the way, and some even long distance, you know, over to the phone. We kind of FaceTime them and all this stuff. And we would ask them questions and interview them and ask them about worship and ask them about church services and all these important questions to figure out where everybody was at. But I want to ask you this morning, if we could somehow bring God himself in for an interview and we could say, Lord, what are your expectations about worship? Lord, how do you define worship? Lord, you tell us what worship is. What should it look like for our church? What would he say? For a lot of us, we've never thought about that at all. We've just always kind of had it in the back of our minds that if we're happy with it, then God must be happy with it. We've never thought, what does God really say to us about how our worship should look? And for many of us, maybe like the song just, just reminded us, maybe it's been a while since we've remembered worship is about Him, and it's not about us. And maybe it's been a long time since you have really, truly worshipped God. Today we are going to look at a passage of Scripture where the Lord teaches us about worship. And really what we see here is a blueprint for a building for people to worship in. But it goes deeper than that to show us the God that we worship. And it teaches us this massive, massive takeaway. And it is this. Worship can never be about you. But worship must always involve you. Worship can never be about you. But it must always involve you. And I want to show you that in Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 1. If you have your Bible today, Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 1. And I'm going to ask you to 
Stand with me as we hear from the Lord and His Word today. And we're just going to look at a few verses today, but use it kind of as an overview of the next really main section of the book of Exodus. Exodus 25, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the effort and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And of all of its furniture, so shall you make it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated this morning. Now, I'm going to be just up front with you today and tell you that when you get into sort of the second half of the book of Exodus, not everything that you read is as immediately captivating and exciting as what you read in the first half of the book. In the first half of the book of Exodus, you've got frogs falling out of the sky and you've got rivers turning into blood. That is exciting stuff. When you get into the last section of the book of Exodus, as God begins to tell his people, here's how I want you to build the tabernacle. Here's how I want you to uh, order the, the furniture. And here are the kind of candelabras that I want you to build. And here is the table for the bread and how big it's supposed to be and the materials you should build out of it. It's not exactly the most exciting portion of the word of God to us. Now, we read this, and this seems like measurements, and it seems like materials. This seems like the Lord's shopping list. This does not seem that interesting to us. I'm sure that with everything you've got going on in your life, and everything happening in the world right now, that the last thing that is on your mind today is, what does the Lord want the high priests to wear 3,500 years ago? That probably has not been on your mind this week, has it? At all. It hasn't really been on my mind. But... These passages of Scripture, when the Lord begins to say, here's how I want the tabernacle to look, and here's how worship should look in the tabernacle, not only are these chapters vital to our understanding of the book of Exodus, in many ways they are the point of the book of Exodus. You see, God had said in Exodus chapter 7 and verse number 17 that everything He had done in saving the people, He had done so that people would know who He was. God had done this to prove His power and His glory and His grace and His faithfulness and all of the things that make God, God. Everything God does, He does to prove His greatness. And that's what He had done in the Exodus. He had rescued a people. He had saved them from bondage. He had brought them out of Egypt. And He had done that so that people would know Him. And now God is going to take this nation of people and He is going to meet with them. And He is going to invite them in to worship. And He is going to show His glory to them. And in a unique way, He is going to show His glory through them to other nations of the world. And at the very center of all of those plans is this building that the Bible calls the tabernacle. Or the tent of meeting. This place where God came in His presence to meet with His people. And so before outlining... Everything that's going to go into the tabernacle in the next handful of chapters in the book of Exodus, you have just kind of this brief overview that really is all about taking up an offering to build that tabernacle in Exodus chapter number 25. And what it does for us is it reveals to us the heart of the God that we worship. This passage of Scripture helps us define His expectations for worship. And it helps shows us how you and I today are supposed to participate in worship. And it gets to the big idea of the book of Exodus that ultimately God delivers us to worship 
God made us and God saves us in Jesus. So that we will be a people who exist to the praise of the glory of His grace. So that we live lives where we show His glory to this world. What does it mean for God to deliver us to worship? Let me show you in this passage three really, really big lessons that we learn. The first lesson we learn is about worship and the heart of God. Worship and the heart of God. Now in verse number 1, the Bible begins with the most simple verbiage you could imagine. God says, just as God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, and just as God spoke and gave the people the law, now God is going to speak and He's going to say, here's the kind of building, really a big giant tent I want you to build, that my people can meet with me in. And we see in verse number 8 that this offering is designed to make what the Bible calls a sanctuary. Verse number 9 calls it a tabernacle, and this is a place, God says, where I can Dwell among my people. This God says, this is where I'm going to live. And the tabernacle and then its successive building, the temple in the Bible, would take on themselves that name, the house of God, because it was a symbol of God's presence among His people. So I want you to think about how incredible this is, right out of the gate, that God is saying here, Moses, I want to dwell among these people who are sinful, These people whose hearts are distracted. These people who do not always believe the things that I tell them. These people who do not live the way that I expect them to live. These people who are not always faithful. These people who do not always trust me and obey me. Moses, I want to be with those people. And that gets into the very essence of what worship is about. That sometimes we get confused in our minds because we think that worship is transactional before it is relational. We think that worship is just business that we do with God, and it's not about actually God being with us. So we come into worship, and we think that worship is about something we do for God, or worship is something we get from God, and those elements are true, but primarily worship is about our being with God and God's being with us. And so what we do when we get the transactional and the relational confused, we turn worship Uh, basically into what Valentine's Day becomes for couples that have been married for more than 10 years. Do you remember what it was like when you first started dating and first got married? February the 14th came around, buddy, and it was champagne and roses. Maybe it wasn't champagne because you're a Baptist, but you know it was (laughs) reservations at a nice steakhouse, and it was a a high-dollar card, and it was gifts, and it was jewelry, and it was chocolates, and what is it now? Now once you look at your calendar and you say, oh my goodness, it's February 10th. Hey, are we doing anything for Valentine's Day this year? Say, yeah, I guess we'll get each other a card. Well, how much are we going to spend? Well, we'll get each other a little something. We'll spend, you know, 25, 50 bucks or whatever. And so you go to the store and you buy her something worth 50 bucks. And she goes to the store and buys you something worth 50 bucks. And you exchange that, right? It's a business transaction. And here's what you need to do next year. What you need to do next year is you just need to go to Target or Walmart or wherever. You need to go to the card section together on Valentine's Day and pick out the card and give it to them and say, look, here's a card I would got you. And then put it back and leave. Just save yourself the trouble and save yourself the time and spend the money yourself. Is that not what our relationship with God can become sometimes? That we come and we give our tithes and we sit in our seat. Here's what I'm doing for you. Lord, here's what I expect from you. Here's how I expect you to bless me. Here's how I expect you to make me feel better. Here's how I expect you to answer my prayers or whatever. God, I've done my part. You do your part. And it's entirely transactional. When God's heart is not about a business transaction, God's heart is for relationship. 
He says, I want to be with these people. It's not a perfunctory exchange of goods and services. It is God being with us. And that really is what God's heart has always been for His people. God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And He put them in the perfect garden in the world. And He said, Adam... He said, I want you to work hard. I want you to love this woman that I've made you. I want you to raise up children. And Adam, every afternoon, every evening, you and I are going to walk in the cool of the day and fellowship and be together. That was God's heart. But Adam sinned, didn't he? And what was the sin that Adam committed? The sin that Adam committed was the sin of believing and acting on the lie that there was a life that was better than a life in fellowship with God. And the life he went after was a life where he thought he could become God. And so he walks away from God in his sin. And the first time that Adam and God interact after Adam's sin, what is Adam doing? He's hiding from God. Now he sees God not as someone to be with, but as somebody to get away from, as somebody to run from, as somebody to be distant from. And yet even in his sin, God continues to pursue Adam. God blesses Adam. God makes promises to Adam. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, I am not going to give up on you sinners that easy. And God comes to another sinner centuries later named Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to be with your people in a distinct way from all the peoples of the earth. Here, God comes to the people of Israel again and says, I am going to have you build a tabernacle so I can be with you. He will come to a king named Solomon again, generations later, and he will say, I want you to build me a temple, a real concrete structure where I will dwell among my people. I want to be with my people. And yet those people neglected the worship of that temple. They polluted that temple with idols and with corrupt sacrifices and walked away from God altogether. And yet what does God do? God sends His angel named Gabriel to a carpenter named Joseph and says, Joseph, your fiancée Mary is pregnant with a baby and you're going to name that baby Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. But He will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So consider the tabernacle, that God is so committed to dwelling with His people that the God of heaven would dwell in a tent made out of animal skins in the wilderness with a bunch of nomads. But our God is so committed to dwelling with His people that He would wrap Himself in human flesh, walk in a human world, know human grief, carry human sin, and die human death so that He could be with His people. And now everybody who has believed in that Savior, the Bible says that God has sent the Spirit of that Savior into our hearts so that now 2 Corinthians 6.16 says that we are the temple of God in this world. That the, the, the place where heaven contacts earth right now is you if you belong to Jesus. You are the holy place in this world where God's presence dwells. What is the ultimate promise God makes to His people in Revelation chapter 21? Yes, that we are going to a world where there is no death, and we are going to a world where there is no disease, and we are going to a world where there is no crying, but we are going to a world where there is no temple. Why? Because the presence of God is with us. What does it say in Revelation 21.3? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God will be with them as their God. That's where we're headed. Because God's heart is to dwell with His people. 
But if you keep reading in the book of Exodus, you'll find out really quickly that there's some kind of problem here. And the problem is that even though God's heart is to dwell with His people, it seems like every step of the way, God is almost paradoxically also saying, listen, you can't come any closer than where you are. God is erecting curtains in the tabernacle to keep people out. He's establishing a priesthood, and He says to those priests, only you can come in this far. And even then, only the high priest, and even then, only one day a year, could He come into the place where the presence of God in the center of the tabernacle actually was. Why is that? Why is, why is it that, that God is orchestrating things this way? The Bible says that the tabernacle was to be a sanctuary in Exodus 25.8. And in our minds, when we hear the word sanctuary, we think of a safe place. But the word sanctuary means a holy place. And the holiness of God was anything but safe for the people of Israel. And you can even see that go further... If you flip over in Exodus chapter 28, verses 33, you'll find God give the precise layout for uh, the garments that the Old Testament priests were to wear. And the Bible says there in verse number 34 that on the hem of their robe, there was a golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. They alternated, bell and pomegranate, bell and pomegranate. I don't know about the pomegranate thing. I guess God just likes pomegranates. If it was me, it would be like chicken wings and tacos. I don't know, but... The bell, it says in verse 35, it will be on Aaron when he ministers. He's the priest. And its sound shall be heard, the bell, when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so he does not die. In other words, Aaron tinkled his way into the presence of God. And if the bells quit ringing, they knew that the holiness of God had destroyed even their high priest in his sin. And they would have to figure out a way to get him out of there, pull him back out. Why? Because the holiness of God was a threat even to their priests. Exodus chapter 26, God erects another barrier between the holy place and the people. And He makes this veil and this veil of blue and purple, the things that they collect in Exodus 25. And He says that you will make this veil and you will skillfully work cherubims in it in verse 31. We think of a cherubim as just you know kind of an angel, a, a big tall guy in a white robe with wings or whatever. But why does God have them sew cherubim into the veil? separating them from the holy place. Why a cherubim? Why not a big giant pomegranate, right? Why a cherubim? To understand that, you have to go all the way back, I think, to Genesis chapter 3. The last thing that Adam and Eve saw as they left the Garden of Eden, as they were exiled out of paradise, the Bible says in Exodus chapter number 3 that God put a cherubim, verse 24, that God put a cherubim at the entrance or the exit, if you will, to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword saying, You sinners are not welcome back into paradise. You cannot come back into this place. You have forfeited your right to be in the presence of a holy God and there will be a sword of judgment that falls on you if you trespass this boundary. See, Adam, for all of the guilt... And the shame and the sin and the rotten self-justifying behavior he passed on to us. He also passed on to us a kind of spiritual exile where as sinners we are not fit for the presence of God. And there is a chilling reminder of that in the very construction of the tabernacle as this cherubim warns them, do not come any further lest the holiness of God consumes you. But folks, the Bible says to us in Matthew's Gospel chapter number 27, that when the Lord Jesus breathed His last breath and cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And when he gave up the ghost, and when he hung his head and died, the Bible says that in that moment, this veil was torn in two from top to bottom. That the veil that had kept sinners out of the presence of God was destroyed forever. Why? Because the flaming sword of God's judgment fell upon Jesus. So that the gates into the presence of God would be opened wide for us forever. So that God could say to sinners like us, You are welcome into my presence. You can come and you can know me and you can live with me. And I can dwell in your heart and you can dwell with me forever. You say, that's that's all fine and good, but what does that mean for me? Here's what that means for you. What that means for you right now is that no matter how severe your sin, you are welcome to God in Christ. That your sin can never overcome His grace. It means that when now as believers, our sin and our temptation is so great that we have minds filled with doubt and worry about His love. It means that we still have at the right hand of our Father a great high priest who is pleading the merits of His sacrifice for us. It means that when the doctor comes to us and says, I'm sorry, but it's cancer and there's nothing we can do, that our name is not only known, but it is spoken by our great high priest in heaven and that we are welcome to come into His presence as often as we like, anytime we like, and that we can come with boldness to find grace to help us in time of need. Because the veil has been torn down. Because God really is committed to dwelling with His people. That is worship and the heart of God. But the second lesson we learn in this passage is about worship and the will of God. Now, God is committed to dwelling with His people. That's the point. But God's also particular about this. He doesn't just kick over the door and say, now y'all come. But He says, here's the kind of building I want you to build. Down to... The centimeter. It would be like God telling us today specifically how to build a church and telling us like how on center the studs in the wall have to be. And the exact number of nails that we had to use. And what thickness of sheetrock he preferred. Why is God going into this precise language? I think there are many reasons for it. Not the least of which is that the Lord knows our human hearts are so easily distracted and so easily confused that we can corrupt the worship of the true God at almost every turn. You can see them doing this a little bit later, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks in Exodus chapter number 32. But I think it also clues us in on the fact that God does not want worship that is just thrown together. He doesn't want worship that's just an afterthought. He doesn't want worship that is left to chance or speculation. I saw a video on Facebook um, earlier this week where a gentleman that I know back in North Carolina is, is starting a church. And in his announcement video for the church that they were starting, um, and I know this brother, he's very sincere, means well, uh, but he was, he was saying in that video, our church is going to be the place where you could come and worship however you feel. And I know what he meant when he said that. I don't disagree with what he meant when he said that. But in the back of my mind, because I knew I'd be preaching this week, uh, this, this week, I thought to myself, is that really what God wants? Does he really just want us to come and express how we feel? Or is God into precision? Because he values the glory of his name. As I, I, I thought about that, I've realized that things in life that really matter, the more they matter, the more precision you expect. It's like if I go this afternoon and get a barbecue sandwich for lunch, which I think may be the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If I go and get a barbecue sandwich for lunch today, I will tell whoever takes my order, 
No, don't, don't put any slaw on that. Because you can cover a cabbage in mayonnaise and it still not be fit for human consumption. Amen. All right? But if I get home and unwrap my barbecue sandwich and it has slaw on it, what am I going to do? I'm going to gripe and say, man, they don't ever pay attention. They don't ever get it right. And I'm just going to scrape it off. And so even if the individual who made my sandwich, if he or she, if they meant well, if they were sincere, if they thought they got it right, but they weren't really paying attention, it's not going to be that big of a deal, right? Because it's a barbecue sandwich, and I'm out four or five bucks. But let's say over the next 30 years, I ate too many of those barbecue sandwiches, and I have to have a quadruple bypass surgery one day. I don't want a heart surgeon that's going to come back out into the waiting room and tell my family, well, we were really sincere. We tried our best. We meant well. It felt good. I want somebody to come out and say we were precise. And we went in there with a meticulous plan and we executed exactly what we intended to do. And that's what God is saying to his people here. He's saying, I matter. And so you should think carefully about how you come into my presence. But I'm afraid that sometimes we worship the way the people of Israel tended to worship much later in their journey. Like you read the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1, God's asking the people, why are you bringing me these blind and crippled sacrifices? He's saying you wouldn't present this to your king, you wouldn't present it to your boss, you wouldn't present it to your governor. Am I not a better king? Am I not a greater master? Am I not worthy of more honor? Now obviously today there are great differences in the way worship looks on this side of the work of the Lord Jesus than there was on the Exodus side of the work of the Lord Jesus. But throughout Scripture, the Bible commands us clearly what worship should be for the people of God when they gather together. And I just want to run through some of these very, very quickly. Worship should be sincere. Matthew chapter 15. That means it should not just be a dry and an empty duty, but it should be passionate. In a similar way, the Bible says in John chapter 4 that we should worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, worship should be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in just a second. But what Jesus is saying here is that when you come into worship, your entire inner being should be cast into the worship of your God. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Everything I am, bless His holy name. Worship should be unified. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, that when you come into the house of God, if you have aught in your heart, if you have a problem in a relationship with a brother, you need to leave your gift and you need to go make it right before you worship. Because the one thing you're not going to do is worship. Worship should be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5 says we should not be drunk with wine. We're in his excess. This ain't that kind of church. But we should be filled with the Spirit. And when we are filled with the Spirit, what are we going to do? We are going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship should be scriptural. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul there says that we should let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then when we do, we will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there he is saying, if you put those two passages of Scripture Together, uh, Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16, that to be spiritual is to be scriptural. Amen, that's a good side point. But without the revelation of the Word of God, we do not know how to worship. That's why for generations and for centuries, Bible-believing Christians have believed that preaching is the central act of Christian worship. And it's not just worship for the preacher. But it's worship for all those who hear the word of God preached because it's here we are hearing the disclosure of the God that we worship. You see it in Exodus 25. Without God speaking, these people would not know how to worship. If God hadn't spoken, we would not know who we worship. But God has spoken and made himself known. And we have no right to cheapen the worship of the true God. 
We have no right to degrade him or devalue him or to pretend like it's something that we could just throw together. And so I would just want you to know some ways that you can cheapen the worship of God. You cheapen the worship of God when you neglect to come to the worship of God. When, and, and I've been shocked in, and I know there's all kinds of craziness with our current pandemic deal, but I've been shocked by how many people are Christians who genuinely don't see the worship of God as a duty. They see it as an option, they see it as something important, but they don't see it as a duty. But there are actually people in our world today who feel like they have to worship God. Isn't that incredible? We cheapen worship when we are so exhausted from what we've been doing all day Saturday up into late Saturday night that we're too tired to worship. My theory is, for whatever this, this works, there's a window of age where, barring medication or serious health issues, where you're young enough to sleep in church, and then you get old enough to sleep in church, and there's a great big gap in the middle. Y'all see? Y'all feel me? And most of us are in that big old gap, right? We, we, we cheapen worship when all we think of is that this is an obligation. When we come just because it's a duty, but there's no delight in it. We cheap, in other words, we cheapen worship when we come to church to worship the same way we go to the dentist. Like, I'm going to survive the sermon, I'm going to endure the music, and I'm going to get out of here. And I wish they would, you know, give me some gas to help me survive it. We come when we have a critical attitude of the music and the preaching and other people. Uh, we cheapen worship when we come with past grudges that we have not forgiven when we make ourselves me-centered. And I don't know that we don't cheapen worship. This has been big in my heart the past few weeks. When we don't come to worship and value our expressions of how we feel about God more than what God has said about Himself. And sometimes when we come to church, uh, we get so lost in how we may express ourselves about God that we feel like if that hasn't happened to the way we wanted, we feel like we haven't worshipped. This is not today primarily about how we feel about God. This is about who God is and responding to Him, which is what the text will lead us to in our third lesson today. There's worship in the heart of God, worship in the will of God, but the Bible also talks about worship and the people of God. Now, I know when I talk to you about all that stuff about how we cheapen worship, I know that hurts our feelings and makes us feel bad about ourselves. But thankfully, we get to end on a high note because we get to talk about an offering. Praise God. And that's what this passage is in Exodus 25. This is people giving. God taking up a collection, uh, taking up contributions is the way that he says it. But I, I'm not today going to so much talk about receiving money as such, but how the giving here in Exodus 25 is such an incredible picture of what worship should be. Uh, for instance, this worship here is uh, participatory. Everybody is involved. Everybody's involved. And I hope you understand today that worship always involves you. That you cannot come into worship the way you might go to a concert. You don't go and watch the professionals do what they do and clap when you experience your enjoyment and then move on. You don't come into worship today the way you would go to Tuscaloosa or the way you would go down to the plains and watch your favorite team do what they do. You don't just go and say, man, I'm glad that our side's doing so great. You get in the game. And you offer up all you have and all you are to the Lord. That's what these people are doing. Right? The Lord says you bring your silver and your gold. You bring your oil for anointing oil and for incense. He says you bring your, your yarn. Some of their people had spent their silver and gold at Hobby Lobby. But God said, y'all bring what you got left. Then the Lord says even you bring your goat skins and your animal hides to make this tent. And the weird thing about 
this goatskin stuff in Exodus 25, is that the word goat could actually be translated as dolphin or manatee. I don't know why any of these people would be walking around in the desert with an old sea cow skin. But the Lord says, listen, whatever you've got to offer, if you will come offer it out of response to who I am, with a heart to glorify me, I will take it. What are they doing here? They are showing the worth of their God. And folks, that's what worship is. When you cut through all the distractions, worship is showing worth. So what is Jesus worth to your heart today? Because that is what worship demands from you. But this offering here is also voluntary. Nobody twists their arm. The Bible goes out of the way to say this is a free will offering. And the Lord goes out of his way to say that they would receive from every man whose heart moves him in verse number 2. In other words, these people are not giving out of guilt. Unlike most every dollar that's ever been collected in a Baptist church. They're not manipulating people out of guilt. Now, we'll take it. Don't get me wrong. But these people are giving out of hearts that have been transformed by grace. So let's think for a moment. You've got people here who, we're going to say probably three, maybe at the most four months earlier were slaves. Had nothing. Born into the worst kind of poverty that the world could ever see. Existed for the sole purpose of work and then to die and be replaced by somebody else. They are little more than garden hose and shovels. That's what they are. They are machines that can talk. And yet now, they have silver and gold and all this stuff to bring together to build a tabernacle for their God. Where do they get that stuff from? Where 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 do their silver and gold come from? The Bible says in Exodus chapter 12 that after the Passover... That God told the people to go to the Egyptians and the Egyptians gave them silver and gold. They paid them to leave is what they did. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so they left them with what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So what you have here is people giving to God out of what he has given them. What you have here are people giving from hearts that are responding to the wealth of their redemption. The Lord says, if your heart is moved, because, you know, six weeks ago you were a slave living in bondage. But now you are free and rescued. If that moves your heart, then you give. If you can remember looking at the door of your house and seeing the blood of a perfect lamb that was sacrificed in your place, if that gets big inside of you, Then you give, and then you worship. And the Lord says, if you remember what it was like standing on the other side of the Red Sea after you'd walked through on dry ground and seen God in His power destroy your enemies, then worship and give. Friends, we should remind ourselves today that we have been rescued from a greater slavery than they were rescued from. We have been bought with the price of a greater lamb than they were bought with. We have been brought into a greater freedom than anybody in Exodus chapter 25 experienced. And by the grace of God revealed to us in Christ, we have more reason to worship than anybody in Exodus chapter 25 did. Because God has done more for us than He has for them. And so how do we respond? We respond by lifting our hands and saying, God, everything I am is yours. Everything I have is yours. I am a product of your power. I am a product of your grace. And I want to live a life that gives praise and honor to you. 
Does that mean God expects me to give silver and gold? Sometimes yes. But more often than not, it looks like maybe giving goat skins and acacia wood. The ordinary things that I might have. Just saying, Lord, I'm all yours. In every area of life, God, I'm yours. See, the Bible says this in Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you or appeal to you, brothers, you know, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. He says you do this because it's holy and acceptable. And then he says it's your spiritual worship. Or in the King James it says this is your reasonable service. And the word service or the word worship is the Greek word that we get our English word liturgy from. And I know as Baptists in Alabama we're not going to geek out over liturgy a whole lot. But some of you maybe have been in church services before or you were raised in churches of different denominations where you would go in, and then they would have an invocation at the beginning of the service, and then somebody would light a candle, and then somebody would read the Old Testament reading, and then they would say the Apostles' Creed, and then they would have this hymn, and then they'd have the New Testament reading, and then they would have this prayer, and then before it was all over, they would sing the doxology, and everybody knew when to stand up and repeat after me and bless you too, all that kind of stuff. Remember that? Some of y'all have never been to a Lutheran funeral, and it's showing right now. But um, uh, the truth is that that's what liturgy is. Liturgy is an order of service. It's a, saying, it's a way of saying, here's how we have structured or planned our worship. Friends, our lives are a living liturgy to the glory of Jesus. Our lives are a worship service, if you will, to the God who has rescued us from our slavery. That's what Paul's saying, that we present everything saying, Lord, I want to live every day as a sacrifice. The supernatural resurrecting power of Jesus making me live even though I have died to myself so that Jesus and his worth are known. That's what God calls us to because he has done all of this for us. As we stand together today and as Sister Kelly comes to lead us in a hymn of invitation, I would ask you, when was the last time you worshipped? Maybe in this place? Maybe... You know, sitting at your dining room table, reading your Bible with your cup of coffee in the morning, or maybe on your drive back home from work in the afternoon. When is the last time you were just overwhelmed with the goodness of God and the greatness of all that He's done for you? Maybe you really can't worship because right now in your heart, there's something that's not right between you and Him or between you and somebody else that you worship with. You need to make that right today. Maybe you're going through some difficulties and trials right now saying, you know, Brother Jesse, I just don't feel like worship. I understand that. I understand that. If I'm going to be honest, I didn't feel much like coming to church today either. I get it. I do. Folks, this is about more than just how we feel. This is about who He is. And no matter how I feel about it, He's worthy of my praise and adoration. So why don't you worship Him now as we sing this song together?